We're in the middle of a study in 1 Peter. It's going to go way into the spring. We're looking at Peter, his life, and his letter. Last Sunday, we really begin to unpack two doctrines that are important for the Christian faith, but that are also very mysterious. The doctrine of election, that we are elect exiles, and the doctrine of the Trinity. And I spoke last week, preached last week about the mystery that exists that causes us to see that God is God. And what Peter is trying to do, and he's doing so well as he's carried along by the Spirit, is to tell us first of all who he is. He is an apostle of Jesus Christ. You know his story, you know his narrative, you're going to hear more of it over the weeks and months to come. But that's who he is, and he's the one called to write this letter. He did so carried along by the Holy Spirit. And then he tells us who we are. And Peter uses that phrase, elect exiled. Now just a minute, think about that. Elect exile. One of those words is permanent. If you are one of the elect, you are a believer in Jesus Christ from before all creation, he knew that you would be his. He chose you to be his. That is a permanent identity. That is one that will go with you forever and ever. That's who you are. It's who you are right now if you're in Christ. But the word exile is not permanent. It is not. Sometimes we feel it more than others. And when we really feel it, it's tempted to believe that that, even in this moment, is our primary identity. But it's not. Our primary identity, meaning there's only one, is that we are in Christ. We are His. The experiences of this sojourn, well, it's, it can be very painful. But the reality is, we are His. This morning we come to this same text that we were in last week, and I'm going to go back and focus specifically upon what it says about Jesus, and then I'm going to move forward talking about the living hope and the reality of rejoicing, even in the midst of trials. So let's stand for the reading of God's Word. I'm going to begin at verse 2 and read through verse 9. Listen to what this text says about Jesus, what it says about the Father, what it says about you and me. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. It is your word. 
and you are in our midst. And Holy Spirit, we ask that you would do that work which only you can do. Illuminate our hearts and our minds. Oh God, cause this word of yours to be the strong foundation in which we stand. Let us find ourselves secure in you. Let us let go of anything else that we would be tempted to put our security in. Oh Lord, if there are those here this morning, even now, who, who know they don't belong to you, they know that they have never professed faith in Christ. God, I pray for your mercy and grace on all of us that we would see the need we have for you and today would trust in the salvation that is found in Jesus Christ alone. We pray in his name. Amen. For a moment, I want you to think about how you, as a man, as a woman, as a child, have experienced the sojourn this week. I want you to think about what's happened in your life, what you've experienced yourself, or heard, or seen with your eyes, that has caused you to feel the pain, the trial, the grieving of living this side of heaven. I want you to think about it for a moment. What, what is tempting you to focus more on the pain and the problem or the situation that's frightening you even more than upon the Lord and who you already are in Him? Everyone in this sanctuary and all who will come in the next hour and all who came before, on this journey towards our eternal home, we've had those experiences even this week, some tougher than others. But the truth is we know that this side of heaven, we're either heading towards a crisis, coming out of a crisis, or we're in the middle of a crisis. And in those moments, our hearts can begin to be heavy. Rick Lehman, one of the first elders of our church, who's a missionary, talks about when that happens and we're facing the trial and the grief that comes with it, we, we're tempted to close our eyes and close our ears. And when we do, our mind goes crazy. Well, Peter knows that feeling. He knows that reality. What's been your experience recently? Have you experienced the sojourn in a waiting room? And even though there are other people in the waiting room with you, do you feel really alone? Even though you don't know what their situation is, and you know it's somewhat similar to yours, and even if you're with loved ones and people care about you, you still feel alone? Has that been your sojourn lately? Maybe your sojourn hasn't been there, but it's at work, and you've made a mistake. And you feel alone in the mistake and you're trying to do everything you can to fix it, to find a way for it not to be discovered, but it's there and it's real and there's probably no way out other than to say, I made a mistake. And you feel isolated. Maybe it's not at work where you're experiencing the curse of the fall. Remember, by the sweat of your brow, we're not farmers, most of us, but work is stressful. Maybe it's not there, but it's a place where you experience the curse still altogether and that is in raising children. It's not just in childbirth, but in child rearing. And you're sitting in carpool, and you know that your little girl or your little boy is on their own sojourn. And the pain of what they were experiencing when you dropped them off has weighed on you all day. And you're hoping as they get in the car that they say, it was a good day, mommy. It was a good day, daddy. But it might not be. It might not have been. And that weight upon you causes you to think like this. Is my child the only one? Does anybody else feel what we're feeling? It's part of the sojourn. It's part of living in the broken world. 
Maybe your sojourn actually starts much, much earlier in the day. In fact, it's late at night. And you wake up in the middle of the night anxious. You're thinking about the day ahead. Or maybe your sojourn actually isn't about thoughts that are way ahead, but about the person lying right next to you. And your marriage really is broken. And the pain of that causes you just to feel great anxiety. Where's God in this? Maybe it's not there. But it was just a few minutes ago. And when we kind of went through the motion of this public confession of sin with rich words to remind us of things, we then got quiet. And as you got quiet and the spirit moved, you begin to have thoughts such as, if the people around me only knew, if they only knew how dark my thoughts have been, if they only knew what my eyes have seen, if they only knew what my tongue has said, even against a brother or sister. And there you feel lonely. There was some comfort in the voice of everyone going through the motions of this public confession, but now it's just between you and the Lord. And you're thankful that no one knows. And you know in your mind that the Lord knows, but it, it just, it's a little bit overwhelming. So you're glad when it only lasts half a minute or a minute. That's us, isn't it? Everything I just gave you was my experience this week. I woke up late in the night. I laid next to my wife saying, you know, there was a moment this week when she told me, you're not being present. There were times when I dropped my daughter off at school and I knew the weight of the sojourn she was on was heavy and she's only a little girl. But the pressure in this community is already there. It's real, isn't it? And where do we go? Where do we go when we feel so isolated, where we feel like we have to perform, we have to give a different image? I feel it. And my guess is you do too. And sometimes it feels like we're, we're standing on the stage and our great fear is that everyone will be able to see what it is that's exposed. And we want to do everything we can to hide it. That is the sojourn. This journey towards our eternal home is hard. It's exhausting. It's real. And God is God. And He, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit has given us everything we need. Everything. Not just some of what we need. Not just a little condiment to go with the main meal. He's given us everything we need. And in that is a call. And Peter will tell us at the end of his letter, it's a call to stand up. It is a call to stand firm in the reality of what you're hearing even now. Let's go to the stage. Maddie, my second born, had just finished her first season of ballet. It's in the summer. It's time for the recital. It's not a very big ballet company. Lots of little girls. And the music begins to play. And as the music begins to play, every mom and dad and grandparent in that auditorium pulls out their video cameras. Now, first of all, it didn't look like this. It looked like this. 
huge cameras on the shoulders, beginning to videotape their loved ones. And the music to Anchors Away started and out paraded our little girls. My little girl turned and looked at a crowd much smaller than you, this audience, this, this congregation, and she simply couldn't handle it. And so she anchored herself to the floor by sitting down right there. Everyone else had to dance around her. Everyone in the crowd was giggling. She just looked down as if to say, nobody can see me. She anchored herself to the floor. This May will be the last recital. She's been in ballet ever since she was four, except for one year. It'll be a big audience. In her class, she's the only senior still participating. She's grown a lot. She's a beautiful dancer. I can't wait to see her. When you have a child that's into ballet as opposed to other sports, they have one event a year. That recital goes on my calendar early and nothing moves it away. At the recital a few years ago, it was the moment when she first went on point. That is when a ballerina learns to stand up, to truly do that most graceful and athletic practice of, of lifting themselves up and holding themselves up. And I remember watching how hard it was for her. I remember seeing her feet and what they looked like. I remember thinking, why are you doing this? And year after year, recently we had a conversation about it and I said, Maddie, how, how do you hold your balance? How do you stand up? She goes, Dad, it's very simple. Our instructors tell us time and time again that when we go up, we are to stand tall and push our feet through the floor. Push your feet through the floor. But the floor is hard. Yes, push your feet through the floor. It's the only way that you can maintain balance. It's the only way you can stand tall. And my friends, that is what Peter is telling us. Peter is telling us that this is the foundation. He, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is the foundation. Push your feet to the floor. Push your feet deep into this foundation. And then he begins to speak as he carries, carried along by the Spirit this incredible word. I want to I focus on it with three words. Blood, hope, and joy. Let's start with blood. Why would I pick that word? Last week, as we were talking about the Trinity, we saw in verse 2 that right away after Peter says who he is, after he tells us who we are, elect exiles, he then begins to describe God. And he describes the Trinity in these first few verses. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He speaks of God the Father in regards to his foreknowledge, relates to election. He speaks about the Spirit and sanctification. Remember, that's two parts. 
that we are sanctified. That is a permanent reality. We are holy because of what Jesus has done, but we are also being made holy. It's permanent. It's progressive. The Lord is moving. And then he speaks of Jesus. Because I didn't have time last week, I want to begin here. He says, and for obedience to Jesus Christ, for sprinkling with his blood. Well, let's talk about this for a moment. God has called us to be his children, that we might be obedient to the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit is doing his work, sanctifying us, making us more and more like Jesus Christ. Obedience to Christ is a sign that someone is a true believer in Jesus Christ. The scripture proof for that is everywhere. Jesus himself said it in John 15, it is to my Father's glory that you, speaking of believers, bear much fruit, so proving to be my disciples. It's not just a New Testament concept though. In Psalm 52, verses 8 and 9, I came across a verse recently when I was on a silent retreat. And the psalmist said this. He was describing his life and he said, I am like an olive branch, thriving in the house of God. I love that verse. I love it so much that when I was asked by other members of the retreat just after we broke silence, how are you doing? I said, I am like an olive branch thriving in the house of God. Now think about how odd that is. They looked at me as if it was odd. They looked at me again when we were on the airplane home and a person who wasn't a believer was sitting next to me and said, how are you today? And I said, I am like an olive branch thriving in the house of God. Now, I said that maybe because I didn't want to talk to them. (laughs) The wall will go up. But I did, and we did. Turns out that they were a believer too. My friends, thriving is not an emotion. Thriving is a reality for those who are in Christ. You either are thriving or you are not. Just because you're going through a hard trial, a grieving trial, doesn't mean you're not thriving. Thriving is about fruit that is being born. And the only way that we can bear fruit so proving to be his disciples is if we are abiding in Jesus Christ. You were called, you were chosen, me too, that we might bear fruit and bring the Lord, our Father in heaven, the Holy Spirit, glory. For only in Christ can that happen. Thriving is not an emotion where we say, I'm pretty good this week, not so good last week, I'm not sure about next week. Thriving is a reality that this is who we are in Christ. We're growing. Obedience is a big deal. But then Peter moves to this most interesting phrase and he says, right there in verse 2, and for sprinkling with his blood. What does that mean? Well, in the Old Testament, there were three times when blood was sprinkled. The first time we come to it has to do with a covenant. And when a covenant was made, blood was sprinkled to seal that covenant. Certainly here you see the image of Jesus Christ, who's the new covenant. His blood is sprinkled that we might have life for all eternity as we trust in him. There's a second use, though, for the sprinkling with blood. And that was in the ordination of priests. 
Aaron and his sons sprinkled with blood as they were called into the priesthood. Now what's interesting about us is we are also called priests here in 1 Peter. But there was a third use for sprinkling with his blood. And many commentators such as Wayne Grudem believe that this is what Peter most likely had in mind. And that is the cleansing of a leper. When a leper was healed, they would go to the priest and to purify them, to do that which would bring glory to God, they sprinkle that individual or those individuals with blood. Now think through the life of a leper for a minute. If you know anything about them, in those days, their identity as a leper would easily become their primary identity. So great would that identity of that, that disease be that they would have to shout as they walked down the streets, unclean, unclean, because it was contagious. That's how they had to speak. Often they were just moved to leper colonies where they would be with other people who had that same identity. But then Peter witnessed Jesus engage those lepers. You think about a painful reality, not just the physical pain, but the social pain, the relational pain. And those lepers were approached by Christ, and those lepers approached Christ, and Christ healed them. Why does Peter use this term sprinkling with his blood? Because not all of us have leprosy. Not all of mankind will have that skin disease. But every person born is born with something far greater, and that is the condition called sin. And the only way in which that condition is wiped out is through the sprinkling of blood. The sprinkling of blood from one perfect lamb. The atonement of Jesus Christ. And Christ Jesus came to this earth on his own sojourn that he would live the perfect life that we could never live and die the perfect death that we could never die so that his blood could be sprinkled, his blood could be shed. And his blood has never failed us. And all who trust in His blood, His work on the Christ, are redeemed, rescued for all eternity. Peter has that in mind as he speaks about what's necessary for us to be in Christ, to be obedient to Jesus. Peter moves from this wonderful introduction in 1 and 2 of the Trinity and their work to the next several verses which then speak about a living hope. Look with me at verse 3. Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Verses 3 through 5 are truly remarkable. Peter begins to talk about a living hope. So let's talk about it. First, this living hope has a beginning. He says to those who are in Christ, you have been born again to a living hope. That's why I, I, I constantly want to challenge my own heart as well as this body is that when we hear the news of someone coming to saving faith, we celebrate in greater ways than we would even celebrate a natural birth, a physical birth. 
For when we hear of one coming to saving faith through ministries such as as ESL or the middle school retreat or men's Tuesday morning or a women's event or re-engage, that is a sign of this living hope being born in the life of a believer, a new believer. So this living hope, what a great phrase, right? This living hope has a beginning and it begins in this new birth, born again. But to what? What does Peter say? To an inheritance. Now this inheritance is described by Peter with these words. Imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Some of you, all of you, I guess I would say, desire to leave an inheritance. Some will be massive. Some will be small. Some of you will inherit a lot and others not so much. But let me tell you the truth. Whatever you inherit from earthly parents or grandparents, whatever you inherit that is earthly will fade. It will at some level be defiled. It will perish. It might take a really long time for some of your inheritances, but it will. The only inheritance that will never perish, that can never be defiled, that can never even fade, is the inheritance that we have in heaven. That inheritance, this passage tells us, is being kept by God. Peter goes on into the second part of verse 5 to say, it is being guarded. Here's what that means. That once you realize that you belong to God, once you realize that you are part of that elect, once you realize that He has saved you by His grace and for His glory, you already have that inheritance. It is yours for all eternity. And it is being kept for you, Paul tells us, by the work of the Holy Spirit. Think about that. This journey as an exile is going to show you the insecurities of the world and the things that we seek to put our security in. But God is the one true secure thing from now until all eternity. His inheritance will never fade, never be defiled, will never perish. It's permanent. But it's also, it's active now. And what that means is that God is working in you and in me to guard us for that promise. He is with us. How close. He's closer to you than whatever pain you feel. He's closer to you than even a disease that might be ravaging you or a loved one's body. He's more present than you and I can even imagine. And He reminds us of this truth constantly in His holy word. Listen to this psalm. Praise the Lord. Praise God our Savior. For each day He carries us in His arms. Our God is a God who saves. The sovereign God rescues us. What an image. It's not just a metaphor. Our living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is carrying us on this journey. 
So lastly, we come to this incredible phrase in verse 6 where Peter says, In this you will rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. He then goes down into verse 8. And near the end of verse 8, he says this. You believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. What does inexpressible joy sound like? What is joy that's filled with glory? I don't know yet. But I know it must look something like this. It must look something like the ten lepers. Healed by Jesus Christ. And all moving on. But one. Stopping. And turning. And returning back to the one and only one who could have done what he just did. And there he expresses such gratitude, such joy. Why? Because in the short distance from when he left to when he returned, it, it dawned on him what just happened, what he had been cleansed from. And what else could he do but return and essentially say to that man, thank you. The greatest attribute of a trusting disciple is gratitude. And the reason that is true is because when we are in the trials, the side of heaven, and when we are tempted to identify ourselves primarily as exiles instead of elect, we are tempted to not trust in the one who is God but to trust in the circumstances around us and the gifts that we have and the ability that we have, the resources that we have. But when we come to the end of ourselves and see that we truly are helpless and only He can do the rescue, we're secure. And when we sense that securing work of Christ, gratitude, trust, it fills us. So today I want you to think of this. Peter writes as an apostle who also was an elect exile. He writes from an experience in which he had to feel the eyes on him as he often was on the stage. And there before Jesus, he said, I will not let you wash my feet. I will not let you wash my feet. It's just a phone. And that's happened to all of us. So just keep your eyes up here. And Jesus says to him words that he can't imagine could ever be true. And there on that stage, even before the other apostles, he says, then not my feet, but my whole body. 
And then Peter says, I will never deny you. Jesus says, you will. And then eyes upon him again, three times he says, I never knew him. How lonely did Peter feel? How like, how much like you and like me did Peter know the pain of the journey? So where did he put his trust? How did he stand tall? Peter learned quite quickly that Jesus Christ was on his own sojourn. Peter learned quite quickly that Jesus Christ was sent to this earth so that he could experience the trials. So that not just all these eyes of those around Golgotha could see him, but that every sin of all time could be poured out on him and the perfect just wrath that went with it. And there, Jesus Christ on that hill was hung on a cross. And that cross was stuck firm in the ground. And there on that cross, Jesus Christ, the man of sorrows, cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then when his time had come, when it had been accomplished, Jesus said, it is finished. He accomplished what the Father had sent him to do. He hung there on a cross that was standing in the ground. My dear friends, we need to push our feet firm into this gospel. But it is not a work that you can do. We would never have the strength, but God does. Ask the Lord this day to plant you firm. that you might thrive for all eternity. Lord Jesus, what a picture. What a picture that you have given us, one that we so desperately need, of this firm and secure gospel. God Almighty, there's great pain in the sanctuary. And there's a living hope that's being presented even now. A living hope that has a permanent inheritance and a guardianship to surround it until that day when it's, it's known. If there are any here, Lord, who need to know you now, I pray your presence would fill them in this place. If there are any who don't know you, I pray that you bring them to saving faith even this day at this time. And Lord, as we stand and lift our voices, would you just keep us present a little bit longer that we might hear the truth of what we are lifting our voices in song and saying. Our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.